1: Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. It's the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and share their story. They might have overcome some kind of adversity or they might still be on their journey, but the stories that will make you laugh, cry and hopefully feel a little bit inspired. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by an amazing individual who's not let anything get in the way of building the life he truly wants. Jack Ivins-Gardner works as part of the production team on ITV Daytime at the prestigious ITV Studios which is actually how we met so I'm so glad he's finally joining me on the podcast today. Jack has a wonderful husband Wes and they are in the process of adopting a child together making their fantastic podcast Two Dads Can Do It Along The Way. Jack also has an invisible disability of autism. I'm so excited to talk to Jack today about all aspects of his story and his many admirable qualities. Thank you, Jack, for joining me.
0: Well, thank you, Katie, for having me. It's an absolute (laughs) privilege. Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) So I'm really glad we, we finally got together to do this um, me too because obviously we, we know, you know we work together in real absolutely. life absolutely well for people that don't understand you know how, how would we work together what would we do you know particularly when I used to come on as a guest Jack would be the person that would brief me he would give me all the research he would make sure that I had everything I needed to go on telly and come across in the way that the public see you come across so it, it's people like Jack behind you that actually help you get to that Point on screen <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's funny because i i i actually only know a small part about your story myself yeah um and you know if I, i'm sort of thinking well how did we first meet and you know what what did i first know about you and we first met in the days where you could wear whatever color you wanted to wear uh, yes. oh yes i screen. miss those days because <laughs> now yeah. like, they make you wear all black don't they
0: Unfortunately, yes. Yes. I do look a bit like a funeral director. It is unfortunate, um, the code of uh, the studio crew, we cannot wear anything reflective. So it has to be any colour you want as long as it's black, which is slightly painful for my sartorial needs. It makes my clothing bill a lot cheaper, but I do miss my colours, definitely.
1: Because that is how I remember you. So it was before I was a a panellist on Lucy Minutes, and I'd come into ITV as a guest if I was promoting a book or a TV show. And I always remembered you as you had the best kind of flamboyant wardrobe. You'd have bright (laughs) colours, patterns. Like you never, ever kind of went under the radar.
0: No, not good for um, guests who may have had a hangover. I think they sort of saw me from a distance and started putting on sunglasses. But it made me happy at that time of morning.
1: So that's how I'd remember you, bright shirt guy. Um, and then I started working on Loose Women as a panellist. Um, yes. And then we both took part in a campaign for ITV Um, which I should let you talk about that so talk about the campaign
0: so it was a campaign focusing on invisible disability it was sort of made up of two halves it was a public advertising campaign um, which you were an excellent face for and it was talking about the various disabilities that you face that people may not have known about you that has all flown under the radar but alongside that um, ITV launched on their website a subsection which focused on ITV colleagues who themselves had um, hidden disabilities as a autistic person. I did a short video where I talked about sort of day-to-day life and working with autism, and working at ITV. Um, There was a nationwide campaign, Was Your Good Self? And uh, yeah, it sort of took from there, really.
1: And I have to say, um, until I saw that content and you doing that, I didn't know that you were autistic. So were you asked to do this? Was it your suggestion?
0: So... I have been part of ITV's Able Network. This is a um, it is a group set up by um, ITV colleagues who themselves have a disability. It gives us a chance to meet each other, um, discuss ITV's disa- uh, disability policies, making sure that we feel that the company is catering to everyone's needs and is being as inclusive as it can be. Um, so they, off the back of several discussions, we'd had several, we had monthly meetings and they'd, this had been in the pipeline for a while. They emailed all of us to say that would anyone be interested in doing a short video about talking about their own invisible disability? And I thought, oh, I would like to be part of that because I'm sort of quite a big, you know, I'm always very much about the more voices and more faces people see that are disabled, um, the more normalising it could be. Um, so it was something I was very keen on doing, and I'm very glad I did it.
1: Yeah, and I suppose it's not it, It's not something to take lightly. It's, it's a big decision, no. isn't it? It's it's giving away some of your privacy and, and anonymity.
0: Definitely. Um, And that was something, I think... Even today, although things are slowly getting better, there is still very much a stigma attached of being disabled um, in all walks of life. But I think particularly there is that real fear of being disabled in the workplace and that feeling of being judged to be inferior to able-bodied, able-minded colleagues um, that you are not able to... Talk about it with your colleagues, not ask for support or additional time or additional resources.
1: Well, this is the interesting thing for me, because you are in um, a very responsible role. You know, you have a very yes. you have a successful career, you have an aspirational career for many people. Yeah. And I'd love to know about your journey, because... It must. It's, it's nerve-wracking to work in telly, whoever you are.
0: I was always interested in television, the workings of it. The very first time I was ever in a television studio was when I was 10, um, when my school was chosen um, to be on the Chuckle Brothers game show, To Me To You. For those of you who grew up in the 90s, you may well remember it. And I was in the audience, two of my um, school colleagues, they were picked to be um, teammates. And I still remember it was a studio in Wembley. And I still remember walking in and just being utterly amazed at... Because you, when you're watching television as a child, you have no concept of how television works, what goes into making it. And all I could just remember, just the atmosphere... And even like something as mundane as the lighting grid, this enormous grid above us with all these lights down and all these cameras. I was, all I was doing was craning my neck up so much so that I didn't actually realise I'd walked into the studio. I immediately tripped over a camera cable and crashed into a camera operator. That was my introduction to television. And after that, I was pretty much, this is something I wanted to do. I had no idea how I was going to do it. And because I was kind of young enough and naive enough, I kind of didn't really think about how difficult or tough it was to be in that industry and it wasn't something that was really discussed I sort of I spent most of my education in special educational in special needs schools which was great in terms of holistically but in terms of education it is more of a holistic approach it's not as challenging as perhaps a mainstream environment there's less facilities because it's much smaller but I was still determined. I wanted to do all the things that I wanted to go to college. I wanted to go to university because it just felt that's what you had to do. I'm very keen on having a sort of structure in my life and I just wanted, I had a sort of tick box. But I was very fortunate when I was at university that I was invited to two weeks work experience at GMTV as it then was. Um, Now it's of course, Good Morning Britain. There was something different about that environment and i just felt this is somewhere that i feel safe and that is something that i think a lot of autistic people strive for in all facets of their life they want that sense of security and safety and i was very fortunate that i found that so early on in my career and from there um i graduated from university and then i was called in just for a chat um there was no context as why they wanted to chat with me so i just rocked up it was very informal and then at the end of it they said we've got an emergency opening because one of the runners has just jacked in their job could you work would you mind working for three months and that was 13 years ago um I've not really left since. Whether or not people want me to leave, I'm not sure, but I've um three months has turned into a very long three months.
1: It's so interesting hearing about your journey because you've basically been in telly all your career and I'm thinking Mm -hmm. you know me and you are recording this podcast it's October 2021 but you're you're talking about a long time ago when you started this yes when actually let's face it it wasn't you know now we can identify as disabled talk about it quite proudly Yes. yes you may get trolled but that's sort of a lot less than it was the than the years ago you're talking about
0: absolutely and
1: actually especially you know neurodiverse conditions like autism or aspergers didn't even have a name at one point. No. Really. that people were literally bullied and seen as outsiders and only physically you know it was only physical disability that we learned about at school or that people understood. Mm-hmm. and so going back to that first sort of few steps of getting work experience and starting Would you mention your disability in your CV? Would you talk about it in an interview? Because you would be up against people, other candidates that presumably didn't have autism.
0: I did ask close friends and people who were working, and I did ask the question, should I disclose the fact that I'm autistic and majority were like well no you can kind of you can kind of mask that you can cover that you don't really people when people meet you they don't see you as disabled I'd like to say now if I was 19 20 21 now I would have no issues whatsoever um inc- there is more em- employers are definitely doing more to encourage people with disabilities to disclose upon application and very much is stated disclosing a disability will not impede your application in any shape or form but there is still that concern of stigma being attached there is still that concern of it, being disabled if I ask for more time, more resources or more support when I'm employed, will an employer think, you know what, why should we bother when we have a person who doesn't require these things? They could be employed and it'd be a far easier and less maybe cost effective way of employment. But it's still, there's still work to be done. I think that's the way I'd look at it.
1: Yeah, you, t- you touched earlier on diagnosis. And when I was researching you, I saw... You actually got your diagnosis so young at three years old. And I had yeah. so, I mean I've got so many questions around that because I've got people mm. in my life um that are um going through diagnosis of autism. And the yeah. one the one thing I've started to learn is it's very difficult to diagnose at a young age.
0: Yes, it is. It is. I think what was interesting about the time when I was diagnosed was it just came off the back of the release of the film Rain Man. So Autism awareness at that point was at an all-time high. Even though, looking today, the film is quite flawed in terms of its um, depiction of autism, it at least brought autism to the fore as a condition to talk about. So doctors, medical professionals had more understanding and more information at their disposal than they ever had before. And I think that, for one, at least, really helped me.
1: And what about You know, you talked about not going to a mainstream school, but despite that, you were very ambitious and and you did go to uni. I wondered what life was like outside of academia. What was your social life like growing up?
0: I could not go to a place that wasn't my home or my school without someone taking me, being with me. So my mum was practically, aside from being my mother, she was pretty much my carer. It's almost as close as one can feel to almost being agoraphobic without being agoraphobic. I was just, I spent most of my time at home or on a bus, going to school, going to school and then coming back. And that was pretty much my life up until the age of about 15 or 16. So I ended up going to a youth child therapist and I spent a lot of time sort of learning coping mechanisms to deal with anxiety and I was able for the very first time to walk down the road by myself at the age of 16. I was very fortunate with my childhood in the way that my mum never tried to box me into what she felt a mainstream child should be like. She never said oh you need to be doing this Jack, you should be going out and seeing friends, you should be doing this. She knew what I wanted she knew what made me happy and that was very much at the forefront of my mind my mum was an incredible advocate for me and yeah I I know I would not be where I was um was out of so she's listening thank you (laughs) mum yeah I think that was where I was incredibly lucky it is very much about being led by your child and what makes them happy
1: that's really interesting because I'm imagining other people will be listening who are parents and carers and friends of, of people, either, you know, diagnosed or, or, or getting diagnosed with autism. And actually, it's not about encouraging the child, it's about being child led, you say.
0: If any parent asks me what they could do for their autistic child, it is so much about being the advocate, being the support they need. At the end of the day, I find the more you invest in your child, your autistic child, the more you will get out of them. I always look at it as putting a round peg in a square hole and your child is that round peg. Sometimes in life, they just won't fit in to the box you want to put them in. It's better to keep them out of the box be happy for who they are and celebrate them.
1: Oh, that's just that's like a quote, isn't it? That's so true. <laughs> it, it was it's almost like letting go, isn't it? And quite it like liberating and and that sense of actually what it what is what is, you know, and not trying to shoehorn something that isn't it, it sounds like you had amazing family support you talked yeah. about your mum what was yes. your family setup
0: who yeah. raised you so yeah so I I mean even more incredible considering my mum my mum is um was a single parent uh she raised me in a small council flat in London I had the incredible fortitude that I lived very close to my mum's parents my grandma and my granddad um so I was effectively the three of them effectively co-parented me. Between the four of us, we were kind of like a unit. And um, yeah, I, again, I would not be the person I am without them. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie?
1: (laughs) Some peasant Coke? (laughs) No. It's so beautiful, isn't it? Because you're talking about what acceptance can do for somebody.
0: And Absolutely.
1: You know, we know this kind of phrase of be kind and love is love. And actually, we, you know, we don't all have to be the same to get along. No. And there's this whole other so- part to your story around your sexuality.
0: When you're a child, an autistic child, or a child with disabilities, you do find there's a lot of facets of your life that no longer become your own. You've sort of almost become Part and parcel of the education system, medical professions, teachers, social workers, social carers, all talking about you, about your condition. There's lots of medical appointments you have to do. Um, For me, it was speech and language therapy, like pretty much nonstop up until the age of eight. You suddenly find so many facets of your personality are kind of become part of the sort of public sphere. And I was very much keen on keeping my sexuality as one element one private element to myself it was like this little it was like my all my facets of my personality were like a sort of bunch of balloons and one by one the balloon uh, all these balloons would sort of float away but I was determined I wanted to keep my gay balloon entirely to myself and as I sort of became a teenager it was trying to navigate thinking what does being an gay man who's autistic, mean, because at that time, I think the most, the best representation of gay life in the UK was Queer as Folk on Channel 4. And I would have been about 13 when it first came on air. And that showed, the very first episode shows a 15-year-old boy going out by himself to Canal Street in Manchester, being picked up by an older man and taking and been taken back to his apartment for sex. And I would be watching this thinking, I couldn't even walk down the road by myself at that point. I would sooner be flying through the air than ever be going out by myself, being engaging with people in a nightclub environment. And I'm, I suffer really badly from sensory input. I do not like noisy, overlit, darkened environments. I really do sort of suffer from that. So there is that real sense of, where is my world? Where is life as a gay artist? Where can that be? Um, And that was something that I really did have to sort of navigate. Again, I do think it's getting a lot easier. I'm seeing there's a real um, network of queer, neurodiverse people online via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and other, and TikTok and other media platforms, which is wonderful. But for me, I was just a few years shy of the digital revolution, so I sort of felt I was an analog boy stepping in into a digital world, but over time, going to university especially, and then going to work, where ironically enough, working where which is the one thing I was very good at, it's where I met my now husband because he worked at ITV himself. Oh, so didn't I, I
1: realised that like, yeah, I wondered, how, yeah, okay. Right. Joe, it's so it's so funny what you said about the nightclubs because um I I after sort of I had my injuries, I really hate um environments like that with loud music, lots of strangers, yeah. it's dark. I always think it feels quite unsafe that anyone could tamper with your drink. Um, yes. You know, you, you just don't know who you're going to meet and what's going to happen. So the one thing I've loved about lockdown is it feels like clubbing has just been deleted from social life.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. 100%. 100%. Yeah.
1: But I love it because I don't like socialising in bars. I don't like socialising in clubs. So now I can just slip under the radar and just, you know... <laughs>
0: honestly cheers to that cheers to that. I'm drinking chamomile tea at the moment I'm, I'm so raising my I. cup to you I'm
1: drinking chamomile tea and also honestly, honestly do you know what I'm so glad i um, listeners we had some technical problems and my camera's broken so Jack can't see me and I'm so glad he can't because I've got a stolen loose women mug that I stole <gasps> <the set.
0: laughs> I think to be fair if anyone deserves a loose women mug it's you Katie I honestly do if they haven't given you one already the fact you've had to steal it is disgraceful honestly
1: <laughs> so we we were talking about Wes you met you met Wes at ITV
0: he's now your yeah. husband um mm-hmm.
1: tell us who Wes is does, is does Wes have a disability we I don't know a lot so about
0: no indeed no he's a sort of quiet elusive um person um he's a quiet elusive one in our relationship um I think if, if I'd met someone who was just like me I think we would have ended up killing each other by now he's very much my anchor and my rock Um, So Wes uh, worked, uh, he works at ITV as well, but he is office-based. He works for um, ITV's sales team. So he's the one who sells all the advertising. Yes, those dull commercials that you um, have to endure between the shows. They are the ones that pay for our bread and butter. So um, they are quite important to us. And uh, he was part of a team. In terms of him himself, he has a mild form of cerebral palsy, he was born severely premature, he was uh, six and a half months when he was born, Um, so he was very small, he was about two pounds when he um, arrived, kicking and screaming into the world, and that obviously had ramifications on his health. He was profoundly deaf up until the age of four when he had grommets put in, he had to go through a lot of occupational health. but. Apart from a mild limp, most people day-to-day do not know that Wes has cerebral palsy. So again, quite similarly, it is in sort of another person with invisible disability um, who's sort of raised through the roof. And it wasn't something we neither of us discussed for a little while until afterwards. Again, I kind of felt, do I want to disclose the fact that I'm autistic to... Where's from the offset? And I made the decision that I wasn't. So it was probably a good few dates before I felt, you know what, I like this guy a lot. I think we need to deal with the elephant in the room. And I said, I have autism. And then it was then that he disclosed the fact that he had cerebral palsy. It's just something we've just kind of together, we've just supported each other with our sort of different needs and wants and on a day-to-day basis. And yeah, it's just like any normal sort of marriage
1: it's so fascinating because um, I have this conversation a lot with other people I work with at my charity, um, people that have been burnt but, but acquired the injuries quite quite recently and and yeah. people that have burns on their bodies that can be hidden by clothes, and they will say to me, when I date someone when should I disclose it? Should it be on the first coffee? Should it be later down the line when I think intimacy is gonna be a thing? And I suppose for me, I've never had that in dating for two reasons, you know, one, it's on my face, people see it straight away. And two, I've chosen to be in the public eye. So my story's already out there. And it's interesting hearing you talk about your career and your love life that you didn't disclose straight away. What's no. your opinion and what's your advice for anybody with something they need to disclose at some point? When is wrong, when is right, and why did you decide to take the journey you did with the disclosure?
0: You know, with Rose Tinted Spectacles, I say, yes, it's 2021, we're beyond this now. We should all be free to disclose and be open to who we are. And I do sincerely hope and envisage that in soon, that won't be an issue at all. But there is still that sense of, you still need to be aware and you still need to be confident and you need to kind of have that in, so to speak. You need to kind of be in that environment first to just see how you feel. Cause also you don't know how you're going to respond or react personally until you're in the environment yourself. I want everybody to succeed because of their workplace environment and not in spite of it. And that is something that is improving, but again, you know, time is a factor and it's just a case of education, education, education and having opportunities like this to discuss it.
1: Do you know, it's so funny when you were talking about um, environments and feeling comfortable, it just reminded me of a memory. I mean, I've been I've been with my husband now for 10 years, but it reminded me of when I was dating uh, before I met him. And when people would ask me to go for a drink or lunch or dinner, whatever it was, I would try and find out the venue first and I would go into a recce a week ahead of the venue to see if it was the right environment for me to go, would it be violent or intimidating is it a rough crowd is the lighting really bright am I going to feel uncomfortable is it by an open door where people might suddenly be rushing in and out that will make me jumpy um, not tell the person I was dating that I did that turn up a week later for the date pretending I'd never been to the location
0: oh my goodness Katie you're pretty much me this is basically my life I'm ever, I am the world's most hyper especially now in an age of Google Maps I can basically plot my entire thing from the journey to, I mean, with the internet, pictures, everything, everything I do is preempted to within an inch of its life and I find that's just the way I can function and honestly, I think there's nothing wrong with having a recce in advance. I would Actively encourage
1: it Yeah, well, I was going to say, like, for me, I don't regret it because one of my biggest problems back then was my eyes. You know, I had a lot of problems with my cornea. I, my eyes can't adjust to light. So if something was too bright, I wouldn't be able to look at someone in the eye. Then yeah. I'd just become a bit socially awkward, not being able to make eye contact. And, you know, and then I had problems with my um, esophagus, which meant I needed to just sit near a toilet if I was eating. <laughs> um, so there were all these things that had I not done all that prep, I would have just come across as really kind of antsy and
0: uncomfortable and that wasn't really
1: me so it helped you know
0: I bet it did no and it is so true and my biggest I'm I'm a man with very few regrets in my life but I think too often when I was younger as a young adult I put myself in situations that I was uncomfortable with because I felt that was the sort of thing I needed to do as a young adult to socialize to go to places that I was not overly familiar with overly comfortable with and invariably all it led was was just to me to be as you said socially awkward within it to be so socially awkward to be so uncomfortable it wasn't an enjoyable experience for me and it wasn't an enjoyable experience for those around me and as I've gotten older I'm very much aware of my likes and my dislikes now and I very rarely I don't put myself in situations now where I know that I'm just going to be uncomfortable life's too short now to be make myself feel so miserable and so anxious
1: see that for me I mean that's very empowering statement and I do believe that is actually true confidence like you're not doing things to be a people pleaser you're not doing things because it's the right thing to do to fit in you're, you're doing what's good for you and that that is somebody that's genuinely confident I think
0: thank you no thank you it took a long time I will say that this is only something that I've really sort of come into in the last few years I say like three or four years of my life and I, that is something I will say to anybody younger than I am don't ever feel pressured into doing something you do not want to do um especially in the workplace environment and especially when you're younger there is that expectation but, expectation is just a pathway to sadness in my experience and i think it's just something that it is tough to be that person that says no i'm not comfortable with this and you kind of would like to believe that you're the people that you work with and people who surround you surround with would be understanding and appreciative of that and that is key i think it is actually reframing the discussions about disability as a whole it's not about what the disabled it's not about what you want the disabled person to do for you it's actually what you can do for the disabled person
1: yeah that's such a powerful conversation and perhaps one that hasn't really been had enough (sighs) so another uh journey and s- other steps that you are start starting or started is you and wes are adopting a child
0: yes indeed and we have actually just very recently we have um it's all been signed it's all it's happened we have actually formally adopted now we have our a boy now which is incredible it has been an experience and uh, yeah, it's just incredible to say, um, especially as someone who did not have a father whilst growing up, to say that I am a father. It's still a wonderful experience. And um, yeah, I still every day he he is truly the light of my life.
1: And you've been really good in, I mean, you've set up a podcast together. Yeah. Um, and actually the podcast is called Two Dads Can Do It.
0: Um, yes, indeed.
1: And it's very—I had a listen, and do you know what? It's very informative because. It, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's not just for people who um, are autistic or gay. It could be for single adopters, heterosexual couples. Absolutely. You know, I actually think it just takes the mystery out of the whole process.
0: There are a lot of people in this country who don't quite understand what adoption process is, how involved it is, the sort of things you sort of have to do, uh, and how long or how short it can be it is quite a long involved emotional process so I think when we set up the podcast as well as our Instagram account uh it was to underpin the mystery really and just to kind of be as transparent as we could be and to show actually you know what It is something that can be done.
1: Mm. See, I think it's brilliant with with the podcast, with the Instagram, you're raising awareness, you're sort of helping other people along their journey, but you are vulnerable. You know, we've talked about all these differences, you know, sexuality, disability, uh, two men adopting a child, There, there are lots of vulnerabilities that other people with more archaic opinions could control <clears throat> control you for could give you a backlash, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Talk about that putting yourself out there like that. That's scary.
0: Everything I've ever I do on Instagram, I do for nobody else but for my younger self. I like to imagine what I would have been like as a thirteen-year-old boy, autistic, hadn't disclosed his sexuality to everybody, was very unsure what the world, his world would be like and what would I want to see what would I want and it is about seeing just people living their life and disability is something that you can take ownership of it's not something that you should be hiding from it's not something that if there's issues with your disability it is society's problem not yours it's about not allowing yourself to be undermined or Constrained by your the people around you. It is about living your life as authentically as you can.
1: This is exactly what you're saying. This is what attracts me to you. This is why I thought you've got to come on the podcast. I hope he agrees. Because I, I, I just feel like there's something in you, like it's some kind of strength, it's some kind of resilience where, you know, you have had a lot of odds stacked against you, but you've been victorious despite that. Where does this come from?
0: Oh, gosh. I mean, you are incredibly kind. I think I am, as I've often said, that I am I am merely the clay and I've been modelled by the people around me. I have a very close group of friends who I deeply love, who understand me, who get me. And that sense of getting a person is not something that I you always have as an autistic person so i'm incredibly lucky to have had that i was very lucky at the age of 19 to have stepped into a workplace environment that felt right for me Um, i was incredibly fortunate to have had a supportive network of colleagues who allowed me to flourish and allowed me to grow and you know autism is something that i was born with it is something i would dying with is part of me it's part of the warp and weft of my life it has informed every facet of my life but it is just saying that and taking ownership of that and basically reaching a point in your life and saying this is who I am this is what I am you just have to try and accept it it's society that needs to accept it and just carry on and live your best life and if that life is for people who may not be able to ever be employed or don't aren't able to live independently, that's not an issue either. It is about what makes you happy rather than what is making the outside world and society happy. And I think that is something that is just needs to be reiterated and shouted from the rooftops of everybody with disabilities. Is about what works for you, not for everybody else.
1: I think that's just such a brilliant closing statement because I... I feel, thank you. Yeah, and I, I want to thank you, actually, because you're being so transparent and you're being, you know, so public uh, in, in such an educational way that you are helping so many young jacks. And, it, and not just young jacks, you're helping parents and friends and family members of Young Jacks as well. So um, I I really want to thank you for that.
0: I am a product of the people I work with, including... Um, people like yourself Katie you do make my job very very easy not everyone does but you are one that do- does and for that I am extremely grateful
1: you do the same for me you're so I mean you're so good at your job so you, you mean you've been a big support for me in at any time I've worked with ITV so so thank you and you know anyone that's listening that wants to know more about Jack and Wes's journey please do look up his podcast it's called two dads can do it and, oh, my doorbell's just rang. That's the Amazon oh, what a, On that note, <laughs>
0: what a, yeah, on that note.
1: Oh, dear. You have been absolutely extraordinary, as the podcast suggests, extraordinary people. Jack, thank you so
0: much. Katie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much indeed.
1: Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please follow where you get your podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show or share on your socials.